and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to welcome Oline Eaton to the program today. Thanks so much for stopping by, Oline. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Eaton is currently a lecturer at Howard University, and today we're going to be talking about her first book, Finding Jackie, A Life Reinvented, which is published by Diversion Books. Now, Oline, you mentioned that she is the most written about woman in American history. What do you think your book is supposed to add to this voluminous amount of output about her life? Yeah, I think it's one of the first books that consciously examines her as that, as the most written about person. There were tons of biographies published during her lifetime, which are kind of what they call clip jobs. They're sort of amalgamating all the reporting from the newspaper articles. And then there have been a few that have been, there have been quite a few (laughs) that have been published since she died. But they often are written for an audience. They just kind of take her celebrity for granted. And I wanted to kind of re-enter as best we can in retrospect the climate in which she was famous and kind of figure out like what did go on here. Because I think Doris Kearns Goodwin said at some point, I mean, it was really interesting to think about what went on there and didn't really pick up that question. And so that's kind of the question that I was running with of like, what in the world was happening in this moment? How did she become so famous? Why was it for so long? Why does she still mean so much to so many people, whether they were alive at the time of her husband's murder or not? So you mentioned early on in the book about your experience with Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. How did she come into your life? So first of all, in the sixth grade, I think there was Women's History Month, as it is now, and she was sort of hurriedly included, and we had a little folder of of handouts and stuff that we could each day in English class, and she was sort of hurriedly included in that, because it was really bad quality Xerox. It looked like it had been mimeographed or something. So she stood out there because it was very 70s portrait of her. She had the feathered hair, big earrings. She was like mid-laugh. Everyone else looked super historical, and she just didn't. So I, I was aware of her from that, and then I was aware of the 20th anniversary of the murder, I think. But I didn't really pay much attention. And then I was aware that she was ill. But when she died, there was just such an outpouring of coverage. There was like, it was, I was watching hard copy. It was on that. It was on tabloid TV. It was on CNN. It was, they were airing the funeral. And so there was just so much coverage of her. And it was so, so full of adoration. And I think as a girl who was growing up in the South and in very conservative religious communities and stuff, I had not seen a woman who was that loved. And especially in contrast to Hillary Clinton, who was hated and the news all the time you'd hear bad things about her it was just very a very striking difference and yeah it just stuck in my head and then I think very quickly there was an issue of Time Magazine that came out that we subscribed to and they talk about the murder a lot more vividly and so kind of that question of like how in the world did she survive that like how do you sit next to your husband and see him violently murdered and then go on and live the rest of your life so that was very very interesting to me in like a 12-year-old kind of way. So I wrote in my journal, I couldn't stop thinking about Richard Nixon and Jackie Kennedy. And my big observation was that they they were, they made history and now they are history. And so that was like <laughs> the first thing I ever wrote about her. It was ridiculous. But it just kind of burrowed in my brain and heart and I just really wanted to know more and I, I didn't understand why. So it was kind of that, that gap in myself of like, why do I want to know about this? That kind of led me into it. And so is that still one of the reasons why the bulk of the book is concentrated on that period of time after the assassination up to the death of Aristotle Onassis? I think so, yeah. I was really trying to write trauma-informed biography here, and I think in part because I kind of self-medicated with her life for a long time. It was a way of there's so much uncertainty in it, there's so much death and grief and loss, um, and some really joyous times as well. But just in growing up and navigate, I experienced loss really early. And so navigating all that, reading about her and 
how she lived her life was very, very helpful, I think. And do you think that was common among Americans who followed her very closely? I think absolutely, yes. I think my theory of celebrity is that there's that distance from their narrative, but also when they're alive, when we're alive, they don't know what's going to happen to them, just as we don't know what's going to happen to us. And it's much more fun for us to wonder what's going to happen to them than to sit around and be like, oh my God, what's going to happen to me? So there's that displacement and that distance, and that's why they're so fascinating, is to see how they're navigating their lives in very different contexts. But And I was thinking when I was reading the book about gossip beyond just mere titillation, that is it some way a way of enforcing cultural mores Mm -hmm. through the coverage of celebrity. Hugely, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things with Jackie a lot. Like when she married Onassis, everyone was horrified. And it was sort of that way of reinforcing certain types of femininity. She was portrayed as unruly because she'd gone abroad and married a foreigner who was kind of had a bad reputation. But even like with, there's a section on it about the mini skirt and the midi skirt and how she was wearing midis and she was used to advertise that. And so it was basically saying women don't wear mini skirts anymore. The fashion world has decided you need to wear midi skirts. So she was used hugely throughout capitalism to sell things, but also to reinforce these ideas of this is the way to be an American woman. This is the way to be a good woman. And I think that's one of the things in 1994 that caught my attention was that she was dignity, grace, class. Those were the the words that were used to describe her just constantly. And Frank Rich had an article in the New York Times at the time that was like, why can't we find any other words? Like, why is everyone repeating the same words? They're really boring. And I was really bored by them as well. And so there was the name Onassis. There was... Maurice Templesman at her funeral got up and read a poem by C.P. Cavafy called Ithaca that talked about like sensual perfumes and distant beaches. And so there were these moments in the telling of her story then that seemed really interesting and so much more interesting beyond the dignity, grace, class and stuff. And so that's kind of, that also caught my attention of like what is being glossed over here? What is being hidden? Because it very much felt like there were parts of the story that were being pushed down. And Wayne Kostenbaum, who's an amazing writer who I adore in his book on Jackie, he said it was like they were like the Soviets banishing dissidents from the historical record because it was Kennedy. It was Jackie Kennedy who was eulogized, Jackie Kennedy who had died. And this whole time period was just completely overwritten and erased. She came under a lot of criticism in this time period when she was married to Onassis. Do you think as much as it is tall poppy syndrome, that it was just the desire for dynamic, that there must be a rise and there must be a fall in these cycles to keep it interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tricky. I think since I wrote this, I've done a little bit more research and I've come to feel that because of her, it sounds kind of wacky, but because of the widow's pension, especially, and because of what she'd done at the funeral, just her stoic behavior and everything, I think there was a real emotional and as taxpayers, financial investment that the American people felt they owned her and her story. Whenever she did something that was out of line in that, it would prompt this, and the media as well, I think, felt the the sense of ownership about her. It would prompt this really strong pushback because she'd fallen out of line, and so which maybe does align with tall poppy syndrome as well. But this idea of, like, this is our story. This is a national story. Yes, you're a player in it, but it's our story. And whenever she deviated from that, then she would get in trouble. But it was just a complete failure to recognize that's her life story as well. This is, like, the story of the murder is the story of the worst day of her life. And everyone else experienced it very differently from how she did it when she was in the moment of it. And you show that conflict fighting for control of the narrative after the assassination. absolutely. And I didn't know that she was the one that coined Camelot Mm -hmm. to be the way to describe it in retrospect. Yeah, yeah. It's such an interesting thing because I really did try to, we we know what happened, like, we've read about it. But it's really, I felt like one of the things that before everyone made all these assumptions when the biographers would write it, they assumed you knew a lot of things. 
it's really easy to look back on her behavior of the week after the murder and just assume that it was very, you know, calculated and that she knew exactly what she was doing and she was in charge of everything. And that's just not how like grief and trauma and loss work. And so I think when we actually consider that this is a human being who just saw this unspeakably horrific thing right next to their face, lost their husband, became homeless, lost their job went through this just unspeakable grief, then you can see that actually it's just someone who's trying to survive a horrible weekend on national TV and that she was doing her best. And so it wasn't all orchestrated necessarily as has been made to seem like. I think that's a helpful thing that the book does do is kind of re-enter this as though it's not all set. She gets to make choices. She gets to make decisions. And things just happen to her that kind of throw her off course as well. Now, a little while ago, you mentioned Hillary Clinton and you go back prior to her marrying John F. Kennedy, and her opinions are very much like Hillary not wanting to bake cookies. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. I think she's very different for her time. Not well, I don't know, actually. I think she's held up as being very different for her time period. I'm sure she wasn't the only one, but she definitely wanted a life that was different from the life of the women around her and her family and just the life that was expected of her which was to marry someone who's going to have a good income, who can you know, keep you at home. And, and even just going to college was a pretty radical thing for someone of that class at that time. But I think it is important to mention she's kind of, when she marries JFK, she's billed as an heiress. She's always perceived as being super like filthy, wet, rich. And she really wasn't. I always call it, say that she was wealth adjacent because her father had money, but then he lost it and was largely financed by her grandfather. And then her mother remarried this fabulously wealthy man who was also kind of on the downturn. And so she was living in these big fancy homes, but she didn't have any property of her own or any money of her own really either. And her mother made it very clear that Hugh Auchincloss, her stepdad, was not going to finance her or her sister whatsoever. And so it was marriage was the way that she would earn, earn money basically. But then she went to college, she became a newspaper reporter and was asking people on the street questions and stuff and had her little column and everything. Little, It was a nice column. It was a very, very well-respected column. And she was actually sent to the Queen's coronation in 1953 to provide the Times-Herald's coverage of the coronation as well and sent back some really cool columns and stuff from that. So she had, she did have a really interesting career beforehand. And it's always a fascinating sliding doors thing to imagine what she would have been like if she'd had the confidence, I think, to be a writer. And it's fascinating to see that her stepfather, Achenklos, was also a stepfather to Gore Vidal and two of the most prominent people in 1960s society mm-hmm. and, and, and intelligentsia circles that yeah, uh, yeah. he was step-parent to. Absolutely, absolutely. I do blame Gore Vidal. Had a, is an amazing writer, and I love his books, and they've been super helpful. But also, like him and Truman Capote spread so much gossip about everybody that it's like ruined. <laughs> it's ruined <laughs> anybody who reads anything. They're always like, did Jackie sleep with Frank Sinatra? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think they did either. Whenever I read some rumor, I'm always like, oh, that's from one of them. It's either Truman Capote or Gore Vidal. And gossip is a major part of this book, and it's a major part of your studies in academia. And at the time, it seemed the movie magazines were kind of the preeminent form of gossip. Yeah, yeah. There would have also been the newspaper columns like Walter Winchell and a whole bunch of other people. But the movie magazines were, I think, what interested me most because... The covers are spectacular. Also, they're the thing that like normal, pe- ordinary people would have read them. They were at the newsstand. You'd see even if like when we go to the grocery store today, we see the headlines. It's almost like on the internet, you'll see a headline and be like, oh yeah, yeah, such and such happened. You never read the article. So the movie magazines were operating in that way, but they also had like really long reports, way more so than you've gotten Us Weekly to now or any of the sort of celebrity magazines that we have these days. They had these really thorough fan fiction reports, which were really fascinating readings and, again, capture all the cultural mores of the time. 
they were spreading her story. There would be upwards of 20 magazines a month. And she was on the cover of a ton of them throughout the entire 60s. It kind of started hesitantly at first when she was first lady. But then once Kennedy had been murdered, she was on them all the time. There would be Jackie special editions and there'd be like one-off magazines that were just about Jackie. They would be covered in the newspapers as well. And the newspapers would all be like, oh, the movie magazines are trash. Here's exactly what they said last month about Jackie. So they're always coming with this like, this is so lowbrow and terrible. We can barely even bring ourselves to cover it, but we're going to reprint every single thing in thorough detail. Even if they weren't widely purchased, because they would often, you'd go to the salon and they'd have piles of them and everybody would read them when they were getting their hair done. They were trickling into the mainstream media as well. So people would encounter them all the time. They were very, very powerful pieces of broadcasting and stuff. And and just really, I think, I was very excited to get to include them in the book because they do kind of capture the texture of the time, of the lived experience. You can see these headlines, these wacky headlines, and these sort of collaged pictures and stuff and get a sense of what people were talking about, what stories sat next to each other on the page. And I think that's really, it's kind of like when we have our phones now and we can encounter you know, you you know things simultaneously that are going on that are of wildly different importance. And the movie magazines kind of help capture that texture. It's so weird to think that the collapse of the studio system led to the movie magazines. And then I guess the assassination of Kennedy, then Watergate led the uh, end of traditional media going hand in hand with the administration that was in power at the time, that those two things led to this explosion mm-hmm. of gossip in yeah. America. And the tension between her attitude towards them, because the Kennedys during the presidency, they were very much like, we don't want anyone to think we're participating with this. They like kept them out of the White House press pool. But then, I mean, the Kennedy women seem to have all been reading them and enjoying them and laughing and like asking each other if it was true that so-and-so bought a boat or whatever. So they all read them and believed them, even as they knew when they read things about themselves they were really annoyed and knew that that wasn't true and were so annoyed that anybody would think that that was true the relationship between them is just really fascinating to me and several people commented in the book that she wanted the publicity but she wanted it on her terms and at that point publicity had become a rodeo bronco and you couldn't write it for more than a few seconds at a time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it is interesting because they start in the 70s. Once she's married to Anassa, she starts actually doing denials, which as someone who studies this stuff, I'm like, don't deny that rumor over in Madrid because then you're just going to bring it over to the U.S. and everyone's suddenly going to know about it. But they did do in strategic places, they did a couple of denials and then she seems to realize that was not working as a system and then they stopped doing that as well. So in the period between the assassination and her courtship with Onassis, which men was she paired up with in the media? What was the speculation about? There's an amazing, like, above-the-fold first page of the newspaper picture of her and Rudolf Nureyev going on a walk in New York in the spring. And I don't even think they're arm-in-arm, but there's, like, this gushing headline about Jackie Smiles again and, like, all this stuff. And Nureyev was gay, so that wasn't that wasn't a real thing. But basically just anyone, there was, I think she did go on a date with Marlon Brando. They were set up once. Then she had these longer-term relationships, like with John Paul Warnicke, who helped design the gravesite for President Kennedy. She had a longer-term relationship with him that really just never even made it to the press. But the press really fell in love with Lord Harlick, David Ormsby Gore, and... It's very strange because there's someone says like the the day after his wife died in a, a car accident, they just knew that he was the man for Jackie. And you're like, good grief. <laughs> he just became a widower. But I think that did help because it kind of concealed the Onassis relationship. The media was so focused on him being the perfect person so that Jackie could become a lady and be titled nobility and stuff that they really just completely discounted Ari Onassis as anybody that she could be serious about. What do you think our fascination with especially the British royalty says about America. 
I mean, the elevation of the Kennedy family as our royal family, I think, suggests that there is certainly a fascination there and that idea of aristocracy as well. And I wonder if it's like aspirational. When I was a kid, I did not pretend to be president. I pretended to be first lady because I was a girl and that was the only option. But that idea of like, it's fame, but it's also like power, that combination of political power in their case. The British royals don't really have political power, but it's also a soap opera. It's families who have births and deaths and joys and tragedies and all that stuff. And you have those key moments in their lives where we're kind of connected to them or watching them on TV, which are also key moments in our lives. So everybody who was alive in November 1963 has a memory of where they were when the assassination occurred, when the murder. There's those moments that just kind of interlock the individual and the celebrity as well so that you do develop a parasocial relationship with them and feel like, like especially with the Kennedys, they were on TV, they were in people's homes. I think those connections are really valuable. They're very odd and maybe not always healthy, but they do help us in navigating our own lives as well. The old saying is that politics is Hollywood for ugly people. Mm -hmm. And when someone is somewhat attractive, Mm -hmm. they have a really good chance of going a long way in politics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think their youth, her especially, she was 31 when she became first lady. I mean, that's very, very young. And the story is that they seemed in contrast to the Eisenhowers really, really glamorous. I think the Eisenhowers in the beginning of the Eisenhower administration were more glamorous than the memory of the Eisenhowers is because both Mamie was very ill by the end of the administration and they weren't doing as much as they had been originally. But I think there was that contrast to the Nixons who probably always seemed way older than they were. The Kennedys just had glamour and charisma. Now, what was her relationship with the Kennedy family like in between the assassination and her remarriage? I think fraught is the word that comes to mind. So coming back to the money thing, I don't think the Kennedys were particularly good to the widows of their sons. They basically had to ask for money. And I think it just put her in a very tenuous position where she would like have to ask Robert Kennedy if she could buy a new car. So she was beholden to them in ways that were probably very uncomfortable and didn't have that sense of security that anybody would want, especially someone who's been through trauma and is trying to restore some sense of control. She does seem to have been quite close to his mother to JFK's mother, Rose Kennedy, which seems to have developed after the marriage to Anassas a bit more because once she wasn't reliant on her for money, then they seem to have been a lot closer. But it seems to have been, I think, the relationships between the women, between JFK's sisters and the other wives, Ethel Kennedy in particular, seems to have been a bit fraught at times as well. I think fraught is probably the the best word for all of this. Well, I think the attitudes toward Aristotle Onassis and that he was a bit of a shady character. It seems pretty rich since Joe Kennedy himself was supposed to be a bit of a whole bunch of shady characters. <laughs> so what were the different types of responses to her courting of Aristotle Onassis? In terms of courting, I don't know how clear it was that they were courting. So Rudolf Nureyev's friend Joan Thring was at a dinner before Robert Kennedy's murder and said that it was pretty clear to her, this is like May of 1968, it was pretty clear to her already that they were going to get married, that there was discussion of it. So that kind of nixes the idea that Kennedy was murdered and then she sort of fled as a response to that. So it was already probably going to happen. And I think that, like, Rose Kennedy seemed to like him. She knew him from before. Jackie's mother allegedly could not stand him. There are reports that he may have had an affair with Jackie's sister as well in the early 1960s. So I think it was just kind of... I don't know. I think uh, there's Joe Kennedy's nurse saw her on the beach with Lord Harlick and said that she just looked incredibly alone. Like she was with someone, but she just looked incredibly alone. And so the contrast of her being with Onassis, it seems to have been very different and very exciting. Apparently an amazing talker who told great stories about Greek history and stuff. 
I think when you look at her own just fascination and curiosity for the rest of the world outside of the U.S., it makes a lot of sense that this person who was quite emotionally engaged and knew loss and knew tragedy and trauma and stuff and was all about her comfort and ease, that, that he makes sense as a choice, I think. And was there any kind of reaction to how was Onassis's relationship with the coup that happened, the colonel's coup that happened in Greece at that time? And, I mean, they were involved in a government that had overthrown a democratically elected leader. That did not get much attention in the U.S. And in the reports, I think I found one report where they were talking, because I was focused on the U.S. media, so a Greek person needs to come and write this and it will look radically different and be amazing. But I did see there was one thing that they thought that it would be a plus the Jack, they were like going to try to recruit Onassis to come become president so that Jackie could be first lady. And it was seen as a really big thing that she was coming to live in the country and a real positive there. But I don't know how accurate that was. That was just someone waxing on in, in the U.S. media. So that may not have been the word on the street. But it, she did seem to largely stay outside of it for the most part, maybe making a donation here or there. So it seemed like a lot of her interactions mm -hmm. with the media kind of prefigured how celebrity coverage would be in the future, especially with the paparazzi being super aggressive, Ron Galela. Was that like the first big legal suit against a paparazzo at the time? There were probably others, but they were probably also against him. <laughs> so I think something with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. I can't remember. But I know he had issues with them. He had issues with Marlon Brando. Brando broke his arm? Was Brando it? broke his arm, yeah. And then he gave Brando cooties. So yeah, he was driving everyone nuts, basically. It is stunning. Like, he would really get on top of them. So there's some pictures of when, when Jackie's in Capri in, like, 1970 or 71. He really looks like someone who's on the security team. Someone else was photographing them, and he is right next to her. So he was always just really close, I think, when he was shooting. I always assumed it was telephoto lenses, but sometimes he is really close. So he's very, very intrusive, and... I think it was that idea of being surveilled. She knew she'd be photographed, but it was the idea of the, when people were watching where she was going and reporting that and stuff, which happened in, in the mid-60s. The Saturday Evening Post published a map of Jackie Kennedy's Manhattan, which had like the children's school and where they got ice cream and everything. And she gave an interview at the time. I was like, why did they publish a map? Like we're people who live here and we always have a target on our back anyway. And now everyone knows where they can go and, and get us. I think it was that level of like, my whole life is being impeded. You're not just taking a picture and leaving me alone. You're like following me everywhere. I think that's what really um, was just impossible to live with and why she ultimately sued. I mean, it's a big deal she, that she did sue because she knew how much attention that would bring as well. Now, while there was a lot of criticism of her love of shopping for fashion, she did use her notoriety and her celebrity for good causes. What were some of the causes that she supported in that time? Yeah. So Design Works was a really, really fascinating program that came out of Robert Kennedy's connection to the Bedford-Stuyvesant community. And she helped fund it, helped them get some office space. I found some stuff in the archives about the office rental and stuff that I didn't know about. And they were charged with helping people in Brooklyn make African designs. So it was textiles and stuff. And they're gorgeous pieces. And she also had them filmed, I think for House Beautiful, had them photographed in her apartment. It was important enough to her that she like allowed photographers into her home and displayed the designs there as well. And then she went to a performance or a, a museum opening or a, a fundraiser gala for design works as well, where their the textiles were being shown off at a museum. And she went in that and stayed for quite a while longer than everybody thought she would. She used it very sparingly, but kind of when she showed up, she really showed up for something that she believed in. So, so much of when we're looking at the past, and especially the media, we're getting kind of the white view mm -hmm. of things in America's history. In uh, your research, did you see anything about how the black media and African-American people felt about Jackie Kennedy? 
Absolutely. And I think this is a whole other book that I hope someone will write because that's not really something I was able to dig into. But she got quite a lot of coverage in Ebony and in Jet. Those are available on Google Books if anybody wants to go track them down. And it's really fascinating. So particularly around her death and around JFK's murder, there were a number of interviews with like people in the street interviews or letters to the editor and stuff. I think there was a real genuine bond there. And also the black community globally, because she was an, a, a white American woman who knew foreign languages and traveled a lot. She had a lot of not just global appeal, but like a lot of respect globally, because she was engaged and curious about other cultures and things too. But I think absolutely, I tried to bring in some things. Andre Leontali in his memoir, The Siobhan Trenches, mentions how much he and his grandmothers and aunts loved her and how they would model their church clothes after Jackie's. So I do include that in the early part of the book. But yeah, that's absolutely, I tried to leave because of the project that I was pursuing, I tried to get in little nuggets of things that other people could pursue so they could find gaps in it as well. And I, that's one I absolutely hope someone will come someday and chase that story. because It's really fascinating, I'm sure, from the glimpses that I've gotten of it. During her marriage with Ernestus, her stepdaughter said that she brought a curse upon the family, and which is not quite true because Joe Kennedy Jr. died well mm -hmm. before she was involved yes. with the Kennedy family, but it was a tremendous string of tragedies they suffered there. And then with the death of uh, Onassis's son, and then after Jackie had passed, John Jr. passing very, in a very similar way. Yeah. It was very strange. Yeah. I mean, if you want to find a curse there, absolutely, yes, you can find a curse because there's a lot of evidence for it. But I tend to think you have families with a lot of people. You also have families that are living quite extremely and taking big risks. A lot of us are not flying around in our own planes. So when you have people who are that public, that people who are engaging in more risky activity, then these things are going to occur. But yes, absolutely. It's what happens, Onassis, just everyone he know dies, basically, after 1973. And it's really distressing, but also her life, the amount of death and loss that she experienced as well. In particular, loss of children, I think, which is something that doesn't get brought up that much in when we think of her stories, that she had three children who died. That's just an enormous amount of loss and is an important part of not dismissing it as a curse, but not. I think when we say it's a curse, it's just an easy example or an easy excuse. But just recognizing like life does have so much loss in it for most of us and that these people dealt with that as well as best they could, often not particularly well. But yeah, it's hard. Since society has changed so much over the years with women being in the workforce much more and achieving high places in government function, what do you think the paradigm for fame for women is nowadays, especially when it comes to government involvement or adjacency? I wish it had changed more. <laughs> when I was preparing this, there were some stunning things like finding out that women couldn't have credit cards until like the mid-70s. Or there's something in like the mid-70s where they were, I was reading about language that had been stricken from textbooks and it was like buxom blonde. And I was like, what in the world is that doing in a textbook? So there were ways in which the world I describe here were very different from where we live now that were quite stunning to me, even though I'd spent a lot of time researching it. But I think it is sad <laughs> to watch reporting now and find out how it and see how it's so similar still that people are still just there's just a lot of routine sexism in the media and and the way that women are covered and talked about whether they're in the government or whether they're famous we should be doing better and it's frustrating that we're not well and we seem in a period of strong regression right now mm -hmm. to they're clawing back the the victories the yeah. small victories that have been made over the decades absolutely yeah mm-hmm mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting to think about what jackie would think of all this i have no idea <laughs> but 
So in looking at gossip over the years, going from your head hoppers and Walter Winchell's to the movie magazines to the supermarket tabloids, you mentioned a current affair and online edition hard and all copy. the hard copy. <laughs> now, I guess TikTok and, mm-hmm. and Twitter. Yeah. How have you seen gossip change over the years? I don't know that it has, honestly. I think it's the forms that have changed. The stories are very similar. The need for content is very similar as well. It's just occurring online. There are things like Dumois, which is a, an Instagram account that's anonymous that publishes unverified gossip and things, which I'm sure has its predecessors and other things. So it does seem just that the technology has changed and the actual the cast of characters is very similar, even though they're different people. Yeah, it doesn't seem that new to me. Except that whenever anything happens and people are there, they can all pull out their phones and record it and we can have 19,000 videos of it. Yeah, because we're all the paparazzi now. We're all the paparazzi now, yeah. yeah. And I guess there is one thing that maybe is slightly different. So I love Gen Z. I teach Gen Z. But Gen Z has made a meme of Jackie that Jackie eats sheet metal because she's not beautiful and attractive. And so the memification of things, I think, does strike me as a little bit different. And that's one thing I hope this book, if nothing else, (laughs) will kind of bring back to the forefront. This is someone who went through something horrible. This is someone whose family was repeatedly victims of gun violence and someone who did something very important for our country and who is also just an important historical figure and maybe inject, not seriousness, but just inject a little bit more respect into the broader conversation around her. Because I think her trauma has not been handled very empathetically in the past by some of the biographers, even biographers who are writing books about her PTSD. And so I'm hoping that that will kind of inject a little bit of not ordinariness, but I think she is a normal person. We're all even the famous people are ordinary people. They go through difficult things and they have mental health issues and stuff like that. So hopefully we can move away from the meme of her. Well, after having put in so many years into the study of Jackie, what are you going to be studying now? This has been a 20-year process, so I'm going to recover for a little while, I think. But I have a few things brewing. I don't want to write about the Kennedys forever. But I am surprised that no one's written a biography of Carolyn Bissett Kennedy, who I think when we're thinking back about women in the 90s who we're kind of reevaluating now, I think she's someone who got a ton of media attention and whose life was kind of really interrupted by it and who died very young and under quite tragic circumstances. So she's just someone who... I don't think has been treated very well by the media or the culture, and it would be really interesting to actually find out more about who she was beyond the style. So that's someone. And I'm also really interested in the William Kennedy Smith rape trial, which is another thing that was a huge big deal in the 90s and then just kind of went away and no one ever talks about it. But I also really, lately, I just want to write essays about paper dolls, which is how I got into nonfiction. I played with paper dolls as a kid, and I had the Tom Tierney presidential paper dolls, and so I grew up playing with Richard Nixon in his underwear and putting clothes on and having Jackie go on to dinner with with Kermit Roosevelt and stuff. And so that was the first time I started playing with real lives. And I'm curious to go back and try to write some essays about paper dolls. Well, Alain, I want to thank you so much for stopping by and sharing your book with us today. It's been a pleasure. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Olin Eaton is the author of Finding Jackie, A Life Reinvented, and it's published by Diversion Books. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.